Hello, beautiful listeners, and welcome to The Premise. I'm your host, Jennifer Thompson. And I'm your host, Chad Thompson. Hi, Chad. Hi, the one you barely hear from. That's, That's right. The, this, this has been kind of crazy. These have been some upside down times <laughs> on planet yeah. Earth. We've been sequestered for how long? I think like three weeks now. I think it's more than that. Really? Maybe a month? Yeah, I think we might be a month, a month and a half in. You know, I just want to say to it's our tough listener... It's tough to say when you, when you work from home, That's right? true, when we're always at home. I just want to say to our listener, we hope you're, you're staying safe and, you know, using this time for good, whether you are being creative yourself... We're taking in all the creative content that's available right now. Oh, like like Questlove live streaming his DJ sets. That is true. We have been cooking dinner to Questlove and we want to just shout out to Quest. Thank you. We're in a time when the ability to reach out and touch each other virtually matters more than ever. Remember to check in with your loved ones. Schedule FaceTime. My little sister is doing trivia night with her friends on Zoom. Sweet. There's so many things we can do to stay positive, to bring joy into our life. And I just want to encourage you to think outside the box. And I also want to encourage you, listener, to record your story during this unprecedented time. Document your experience. We're going to be able to look back on this and hopefully we can learn from it and become stronger. Here on the premise, we believe that stories help change our experience, build empathy, and bring us together. And as you know, the San Diego Writers Festival has been postponed until wah, further notice. Wah, wah, wah. Right? But silver lining. Chad and I are here and we will continue to bring you weekly episodes. All of our guests have been really gracious in calling in and having the right microphone so the sound is good for you. But in the meantime, thank you for being here. We're honored to be part of your listening experience. Yeah. Thanks for joining us here in the bunker. In the bunker. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Today on The Premise, Chad and I are speaking with Eileen Zimmerman, a journalist and author of the memoir, Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy. In her memoir, she chronicles the unraveling of her ex-husband, Peter, who slowly declines into erratic behavior that no one can explain. She brushes off his behavior as just stress from his high-pressure job as a successful patent attorney. Eventually, Eileen begins to wonder if her ex-husband is having a psychotic breakdown or he's bipolar. None of it adds up. The riveting memoir begins when Eileen discovers Peter dead on his bathroom floor. She is shocked to learn that he died of a drug overdose, and yet the signs were all there. As a journalist, Eileen begins exploring how could this happen to someone so successful, so smart, so together, a man who loves their children so deeply. She begins her research in an effort to put the pieces together and understand what happened. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us here on The Premise. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, we're so... Uh, this is a pretty tough story to talk about. There's a lot of sadness. Um, there's a lot of healing. And I want to start with the article. So Smacked, I, I believe, started as an article for the New York Times that you wrote in right. 2017. That's Two right. years, almost to the day after Peter's death. 
Right, right. Almost exactly two years. It's like four. Yeah, I was kind of struck by that. And in your article, The Lawyer, The Addict, you talk about how this started as a desire to make sense of how this could happen and how no one saw it coming. As a journalist myself, I I totally get this desire to make sense of the facts, to dig in and turn your grief into a research project of sorts. Can you talk about those two years? Sure. So um, when Peter... Uh, passed away, I wound up becoming, he, he, was, he wasn't remarried and there was uh, no one else in his life that could really settle his estate and we, and we had kids together. So I wound up taking on that role again of like the person who organized the funeral and became executor of his estate and kind of got everything cleaned up and cleared out for my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so during the, to that period of time, it was about almost two years from the time he died until probate ended. And it was, um, it was a very difficult process because I had to get my kids kind of, they had to figure out their grieving process. I was grieving, but I didn't really have a chance to. Peter's extended family was, the people he worked with were, and I had to clean out his house and kind of, um, he hadn't filed taxes in several years. He had done, wow. he had done not much, but um, acquire and do drugs for probably a year before he died. So everything was kind of a huge mess. Mm-hmm. And then during that time, I also um, started to to be more curious about what happened to him and how this could have happened. And when I was at his house, right when I found him, the medical examiner at the time had said, when I had expressed complete surprise at the fact that Peter would be doing anything like an injectable drug. She -hmm. said, well, we actually see a lot of this now um, in San Diego, at least these kind of high power executives that were dying of overdoses, especially amphetamines. And I thought, well, there's a story there, but I can't do anything about that now. And so Mm -hmm. as I took this two year period, I did some investigation. I called the doctor that uh, performed the autopsy. I started looking more into white collar drug addiction and mental illness. And then about six months after, um, Peter died, the American Bar Association, Hazleton Betty Ford, which is a famous treatment center in Minnesota, came out with the first comprehensive study of lawyers and substance use, alcohol and drugs. And so there was that, which showed that they had a a, a lot of depression, anxiety, a, an enormous amount of alcoholism. And a huge part of the um, lawyer surveyed skipped over the questions on drug use, which made me very curious as a reporter as to why that was. And uh, sure. I subsequently learned it was because or the understanding of the people that ran the study was that they were probably afraid to answer. And so that's a long way to say that in that period of time, I wound up doing some research. And so that um, I realized there was a story to tell, at least about the legal profession and what happened to him. And I decided to do that for the New York Times. Right. In, in your book club questions, you ask, why did the author choose to write this story? It it seems that you want people to discuss the addiction side of it, the underlying stress and constant pressures that come with being a lawyer, but also the need for change. Did you hope to create awareness and bring about some level of change with the publication of this book? I did. I hoped to bring out uh, bring about some change with the New York Times story f- at first um, because I was pretty angry that um, yeah yeah I was and, just so angry about it yeah. And tell me, tell our listeners, how old were your children when Peter died? So when he died, they were 16 and 18. And I, at the time, I really blamed a lot of this on the pressures of his profession. He was a partner 
at Wilson Sonsini, which um, has a very prominent office in San Diego and Carmel Valley, but also is based in Silicon Valley. And they are known for being this hard charging kind of white shoe, prestigious Silicon Valley law firm. And he was very proud to be there. And he is a really good lawyer. But um, I just thought the devotion to look to, to his job and I thought the punishing hours and the high client expectations were what did him in. That's too simplistic of an explanation. I know that now, but at the time I was really, really angry at the profession and at his firm for driving him so hard. And what I saw is what led him down this path, what at least I thought might've been part of it. And I think it was. And Mm -hmm. so that article did, I really feel start a conversation in the legal profession, which people weren't having before about substance use and also about underlying health problems like mental and physical, so depression, anxiety, but also just physical pain from um, being at a desk all day or just exhaustion from not sleeping enough. I mean, Peter would get up at two in the morning for a, a conference call with someone in China or a Swiss pharmaceutical company or whatever it was, you know, he was at their beck and call. So I think um, that started that conversation and the book I had hoped, and I still do hope will continue that conversation and also broaden it to all kinds of professions, not just the legal profession, but finance, technology, medicine. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a culture issue on so many levels, Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, and lawyers in particular, I can see how they would succumb to drug use and drug addiction, you know, as a professional hazard. I mean, the pressure, the competition, and you, you describe it so well in your memoir. Um, Part of me wonders, even if the industry as a whole was more transparent, and instead of ignoring it and being embarrassed by it, what if they named it and recognized addiction, you know, addiction as a disease? Uh, would would Peter be alive today? Well, that's a good question. You know, and I, um, as part of the, well, I did get to tour for about a month before um, the co- coronavirus really hit. And um, one night I had dinner with a bunch of people at Stanford. They have the Stanford Center for the Legal Profession. And there were two managing directors of um, Silicon Valley-based firms there. And they had both said that at their firm now, they were highly aware of substance use. And there, you know, everybody knows the stereotype of the lawyer with the drink in his hand or her hand. And there's a lot of drinking in the legal profession. And and it's just one way, I guess, of um, coping. And so they they were trying to have less alcohol, for instance, at summer events, at all social events. And they were also encouraging their attorneys to, 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 Uh, be able to talk to someone if they weren't feeling well, that there would not be fallout, they wouldn't lose their jobs. You know, they they wanted to promote more of a kind of a team effort where in law, you're really pitted against one another, because even if you are working for the same client, there might be different matters within that client. And, you know, and you, you're kind of competing against your colleagues, even though you're on the same team. So they're trying to foster a different atmosphere, in part, because they feel like, the only way to get at the heart of um, addiction problems is to allow people the space to talk about it and a safe place to talk about it and know sure. that there's not going to be some kind of punishment for it. Yeah. 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 I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. I, I wonder, do you think you actually knew deep down and you just couldn't accept it? Or did you really have no idea that drug was, drugs were at the heart of this? You know, I have gotten asked that so often. It must seem astonishing to people that I didn't know. But um, 
I, I, it never even crossed my mind. I mean, now looking back, I think, oh my gosh, I can't believe it didn't cross my mind, but it just, it was so not a part of my existence. Like I just figured that this crisis, this opioid crisis or the drug crisis was not something that was going to be a part of my life or the people I knew. I knew it existed. I knew as a journalist, it existed. And I certainly was interested in it, but it seemed very apart from my personal life. And so I couldn't imagine why Peter would make a decision to me that seemed so irresponsible and and not smart. I mean, he well, and he was a chemist, so he, he was knew a chemist. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He was like, well, you know, not only is he just a, a smart human being, but here's a guy who understands chemistry and body chemistry. Right. And I just thought, yeah. I never even occurred to me because I thought he wouldn't know where to get it. Like I just mm-hmm. thought, like, how would he even know how to do it? Like. Mm-hmm. So I guess, no, I really didn't know. Now it seems ridiculous that I didn't, but I considered every other thing, but everything that's completely out of the ordinary, like eating disorders, bipolar disorders, schizophrenia, like anything else that I could get my hands on, I thought, well, maybe it's that. But -hmm. somehow the drugs just never, never thought about it. Right. Yeah. You do such a good job of bringing us into your, your mind space, you know, and and bringing thank us you. into that place that, you know, it's a riveting story. Um, I read it in one sitting. Um, <laughs> thank you. Highly recommend it to our readers. Uh, please buy from a local bookstore. You know, yes. Help out help out our local bookstores during this this time and totally. any time, frankly. Um, Warwick's, our, our sponsor, has free shipping. That's right. Oh, yes. fantastic. <laughs> yes, Warwick's support Warwick. Home, yeah. Right. Absolutely. In our culture, so many times we hide things and, you know, we keep secrets and we don't talk about it and we're ashamed, which just causes more pain. And when you decided to tell your kids the truth of their father's death, that he died of a drug overdose, when you decided to publish the story in the New York Times, and when you decided to write this book, do you think a lot of the healing came out of your decisions to be transparent and talk about the facts openly? Well, and just to... It's a nuanced difference, but Peter actually didn't die of an overdose. He died of an infection related to intravenous drug use. True. And it's unclear. He, he, it could have been, but it, it, the autopsy report showed that it was this infection that had happened because he was using needles. Mm-hmm. So, but he was very weakened by drug use. Um, and I think it's, I think, um, it's, it's, who knows if it's more common. I would imagine it's more common for people to die of overdoses than this particular infection, although this infection is common in intravenous drug users. Mm-hmm. But that said, um, with the New York Times story, it felt really cathartic for me. I just felt like for about a year and a half, I had been keeping this secret. Yeah. And it just felt like I, w- I better not say anything. Peter's firm never explicitly said, don't say anything. But I just got the feeling because they weren't saying anything and they kind of erased his existence really quickly from the firm. Mm-hmm. They, they kind of, uh, his boss asked me pretty quickly if we were, you know, within 24 hours, when is the funeral going to be? People need to move on. So the, the feeling I got was I better, um, I better keep my mouth shut. I better not say anything. And so, um, I didn't, and it was really making me feel sick. And I, I, I felt like I was lying to people. People would constantly ask, how could he die? He was only 51. You know, he used mm-hmm. to run marathons, all of mm-hmm. this stuff. And it was making me feel depressed and anxious. And I needed, I think, to connect with other people and say, like, look what happened to my family. Like, this could be happening to your family. Like, I didn't think it was possible sure. either. Right. So for that, it was very cathartic in that way for me. For my kids, I think um, my daughter struggled a little bit after the New York Times piece came out. I think it's like a lot of other things with um, 
people I've interviewed over the years, like they'll want to be a part of a story. And then when they see it in print, it's a different reaction. And I think it was very public. I felt a little bit pressured to use photos and and stuff Mm. in it, which I'm glad we did, but that was really hard for her. So, um, that was a little bit hard for her, but I will say now that the book is out, um, it has been it has been really healing for all of us. I think all three of us have talked a lot about it. Um, my daughter and I did some counseling before the book came out just to kind of get ahead of any issues that might come up because it kind of stirred the pot again. Um, but it was terrific. It was a way to really kind of talk about Peter and talk about you know what we've learned in the years that have passed. And yeah, I mean, I think it was a very very healing and it wonderful thing. I mean, it was really hard, but it also let me grieve grieve in a way like I hadn't really let myself for a long time. And then I was able to as well. Sure. Writing does that for us, doesn't it? Doesn't. I know. I have a friend here that's a writer. um, And she said, way after the New York Times piece came out, she wrote me an email and she said, aren't we lucky to be writers? And I thought we are because Mm -hmm. yeah, it was a way for me to kind of process it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I want to go back just a minute um, and then come back to this. But in the book, I think his name was Tom. He was the uh, basically Peter's boss at the front. Oh, that was it was Jeff. Jeff. Okay. Yeah. But Jeff, he shows up the day of. Here you are dealing with telling your children mm-hmm. and, you know, just finding this that yeah. this is this had happened and then this man who is a stranger to you steps in and he's present through all of this and that really struck me is was he there to be supportive was he there to make sure everything was clean i mean mm-hmm. how did no, you know that's a good that question way? yeah mitigate well, the I, law firm's exposure i wonder yeah i was like this is so yeah. weird why is this man here and you mentioned that you're like why won't he leave but you just yeah it was bizarre it i mean i i had known him for many years but i hadn't seen him for five years because we'd been divorced and um and, it, you know, and that was, I was trying to let Peter kind of have his relationships outside of our joint ones. Um, I, you know, he said a neighbor called him, which, mm. you know, it odd. It's, it's odd, it's plausible, but also Peter wasn't really great friends with his neighbors. And, um, and Jeff didn't live uh, near Peter particularly. I mean, they didn't live that far, but not in that neighborhood. You know, I don't know. I, I felt... He was there and sort of, it, it did feel odd. I felt my, those were the same questions I had. Like, is he watching, is he like the eyes of the firm to mm-hmm. kind of check things out and see what their liability is or exposure or what the situation is? I mean, he might've been there because he cared about Peter, which I think he did, but um, it was, a, I, I don't have an answer, but it was very, very odd. And it felt, you know, it did feel very intrusive. Like he shouldn't be there, but at the same time, I felt, like I, you know, I needed the firm to help us and I needed, um, I needed mm-hmm. him to help us. And so I felt like I was in a place where I needed to be, um, or I, I, I needed to not say anything and let him stay for whatever his reasons were. He felt that he needed to be there. Maybe he was trying to help, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, he wasn't unhelpful. It's just that it felt odd. An that odd he was presence. There. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you're not family, you, you know, yeah. you, you don't hang out with Peter. Why are you here? Why yeah. are you here? That's how I felt about it. I yeah, I did too. It's Jeff character. <laughs> you know, um, I will say though, I was impressed that the, the system worked for you in that moment. You know, there were um, yeah. therapists, there were, there were people there to talk to the children, you know, the way they handled the situation in that moment, I was impressed with. In fact, I think at one point you asked, you know, do you have children? What would you do? And they said, tell them the truth. And, oh, they were, they were remarkable. It was amazing that, that, I mean, this person had died and, and we got, 
so much help from the San Diego police. There were paramedics. There were these mm-hmm. wonderful women that were um, like grief. Um, they were supposed to help with people that were grieving. And um, yeah, it was, it was just, I was blown away by how much support. I mean, and I got a lot of information from the medical examiner sat with me and the kids and also gave me lots of information afterwards that I was going to need. And um, yeah, the the system definitely did work and it was, it's a terrific system. (laughs) It was amazing. It was a ton of support at a time where I did not know what to do. I I just kept thinking, thank God. I mean, not that I'm glad you found your ex-husband, but I'm glad it wasn't your children. Oh my gosh. I know. And my daughter had, um, she had said, I can't reach dad and I have to work. I can't go up there. And I had already mm. decided that like mm. they, they weren't going to go up there. Cause I thought he was just going to be super sick and they hadn't been able to get him to go to the hospital. So I thought, well, I will, I will do this. And you so, were like, yes. I'm going to take care of him. Well, you know, I'm going to make him soup. I'm going to, yeah, no. I'm going to, or I'm going to get him to the hospital. I just thought like, mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of him. I mean, I, I was kind of afraid of him, but not like a child. Sure. So I thought like, I am going to call 911. Like I am going to get him to the hospital because mm-hmm. this is ridiculous, you know? And then it was too late. You write about how Evan, your son blamed himself because he didn't insist on getting his dad to the hospital. And yeah. there's this moment when he realizes the why and knows that it was drugs and a mm-hmm. disease, and the disease had ended his father's life. Um, right. He somehow seems relieved by this. Yes, for sure. You must be so grateful that you made that decision right then and there to tell them the truth, because so many people wouldn't have. They would have tried to hide the ugliness, right? You know, I guess that is true. It was so such a brief moment. I mean, I I did ask um, the medical examiner, Angela, what would you do? And, um, and she had said, I would tell them the truth. And so did the grief, the grief counselors that were there. Mm-hmm. But I also knew, I think, um, you know, I mean, my whole life has been, you know, my career has been about, you know, telling the truth. And, and I, I also realized, like, I thought, how would I ever keep this from them? Like, I'm so in shock from it. I just, it didn't even seem like it would have been a realistic alternative, but I was so glad because my son, he actually really did try to take his dad to the hospital. But I think even in Peter's weakened state, he was so, he was his dad and he was powerful. And my son was only 16 and Peter yelled at him and he never used to, he never raised his voice generally. So I think he was really scared, but he was also scared for him. And he did, he felt for a long time, even after that, even though he knew it wasn't his fault, I remember him saying, you know, I think for a long time, I'm still going to think it was partially my fault that oh. I didn't get him. I know it's such a hard thing to hear a kid say. I mean, he's older, he's 21 now. And I think he's, I know, so he's had a lot of chance to process it. And I think he, he understands now that he, there was nothing he could have done. Like the, this was set in play long before he was involved in it. So, but um, for a long time, I think when he was a senior in high school, he did wonder if he could have saved him. That's like a question that always comes up, you know, of course. me too, you know, should of I course. come up two days earlier or whatever? Yeah. yeah. We can't help but go there. That's just how yeah, we build as humans. It's such a natural, yes, I think it's a natural inclination. Hmm. You first told your truth publicly in a vamp performance in San <laughs> Diego, did. is that right? Yes, I did. Which, you know, huge shout out to So Say We All, the group, the nonprofit that puts on the VAMP performances. And they're a part of the San Diego Writers Festival, by the way. Oh, right. Um, That's right. They're terrific. They have the, 
vamp showcase every month, right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, did you perform at the Whistle Stop in South Park? I did. I performed at the Whistle Stop. I had um, I had been to my first performance there that summer for a friend's birthday, and I was blown away. Mm-hmm. And I and I had been thinking, and someone had suggested, why don't you try to tell the story there? Because I hadn't said it publicly, and I thought, you know, maybe I maybe I will. I thought it was very unlikely any of Peter's colleagues would be at the Whistle Stop. I mean, most of them were in North County, right, and they were right, right, lawyers. Right. It didn't seem like their scene. So um, it was a chance for me to just say it out loud, and I was very, very scared, but I felt like it was something I wanted to do. I just wanted to get it out. And it was so liberating and I felt so much relief and just Mm -hmm. seeing a room full of people that you could see they were upset and understood why I was upset. There's just, I just really needed that. Um, and so that was the beginning and if, and I felt so right to tell it Mm -hmm. that I thought after that, like, I can do this, I can write, write this for the times. And then after the Times story went viral, that's when I thought, like, I can also do a book. I was going to ask you when you decided that the memoir needed to be written. You know, I had already, um, I had already thought about writing a memoir and I had the prologue written and like the first chapter and I'd gone to Aspen Summer Words, which is a program of the, it's the Aspen Institute's um, like creative writing arm. And they have a juried workshop in the summer for memoir and fiction and nonfiction. And so I was in the memoir workshop and I had started workshopping it with a group of writers and I met my agent there and she was said, Oh, I'm interested in it. And let's talk when you get, when we get back to New York. And I said, Oh yeah, by the way, I think I'm going to have a piece in the times. And she was like, well, that's a big deal. Let's see how yeah. that does. Yeah. And so I was like, Oh, I don't know. It's just going to be in the business section. So then it came out and it, it just got a ton of traction far more than I thought it would. And um, after that, she said, let's, let's get a proposal together and sell it. So that's what we did. I, I highly recommend this article to our readers. And they can oh, read it on your website you. at EileenZimmerman.com yep. on your press page. Right. Good for you for having a press page, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes, that's a, you're doing it right. Um, the right thing to do, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I got to ask, when you knew, when you realized you were going to write a memoir, did mm-hmm. that scare you? Was that scary? It was. Well, the thought of writing a book went for so many years. I've just been somebody who wrote articles. So, you know, the longest piece I wrote, other than I wrote the one for the Times was about 4,000 words. I did one on the Monarch School in San Diego, which is the largest school for homeless kids in the country for the Atlantic. And that was about 4,000 words too. And so this was going to be, you know, 80,000 80,000, yeah. Right. And I just, honestly, I couldn't conceptualize it. I had a really good editor and I was able to put together a very uh, specific outline, which helped me. Mm. And then, and it was kind of terrifying, but also once I started, it was so, it was just such, such a gift. I could like process on the page, all the things mm. I've been feeling and that I had noticed and seen and wanted to think through, um, that it went, it was, it was easier than I thought in that way, but it was also much harder emotionally than I anticipated. Um, and it took a lot longer than I thought. I remember telling Random House, I'm like, oh, I could do this in nine months, you know, and like two years later. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, yeah it, does, it does take a while, doesn't it? <laughs> I was going to say nine months is pretty ambitious, but that makes right. sense. Because as a journalist, you're used to deadlines and you break exactly. it down. Exactly. You're not yes. dealing with the emotions, right? No. And also, I, you know, they they also, my agent had told me that all, journalists always say that. They're like, oh, I can bang that out, you know. But, <laughs> you know, and I, t- I remember turning it in and thinking like, well, that's done. And my editor was like, well, that's a great first draft. And I was like, what? 
What? <laughs> so yeah, she was right. But yeah. Can you talk to us about your writing process? I mean, I know as a journalist, you probably had a typical writing routine. Did you develop a new routine, new routine to write the book? Or was it, you know, generally the same as what you were used to? Well, as a freelancer, and I mean, I'm sure you may know, like, if to make a living as a freelancer, you have to write a lot of stuff. Yes, so I used do. to write, yes, just <laughs> constantly. And I would have a very specific calendar of interviews and research and writing and marketing. And so with this, I kind of, I had done a little, I had still been doing a little bit of writing for the times I stopped and decided, um, I took a semester off from uh, graduate school and I traveled around the country doing research and did a lot of interviews and visited addiction psychiatrists and high-end rehabs and a whole bunch of different places. So for a while, I was just focused on the research and writing some of the stuff that didn't require research, just the expository stuff that I knew that had happened to me, but didn't require mm -hmm. a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And then the process of it was pretty much I stayed to the same schedule I had as a freelancer, you know, I'd get up in the morning and I would, I would, um, I had, uh, by that point, I was also I do. Oh no, I wasn't yet. Okay. So I would, I would get up and I would write pretty much for five or six hours during the day. And then, um, I was still doing a little bit of research as well, but I pretty mm. much stuck to like a full day of writing. And then I wound up having some field work for my social work, which was two days a week. So I would do my revisions and any uh, additional writing in the three days a week that I wasn't there, wow. uh, which worked out. Okay. So you shopped the book proposal, your agent, you shopped that, and then you wrote the book. Right. So I had written um, the prologue and two chapters. And okay. then I had, and then I just developed an outline. A, a, an outline with a summary of each chapter, kind of an overview. And we just had to put it together really quick because the story in the Times was doing so well that she wanted to capitalize on that. Sure. And so she sent it out um, to about 14 editors. And then in the end, it went to auction um, to, I think, three. And, oh, okay. and then I went with Random House. Yeah. Nice. So it was really quick. I think it was. Un un I don't think that's the way it normally works, but in this case, yeah, that's that how seems it works. to be a theme on this podcast. Yeah, everyone's like, "Well, it happened real fast for me." You know, oh, maybe you know, it's a thing. Yeah, no. I yes. I mean, I think I was capitalizing on something that was going on at that moment. Sure. So we had to move quickly. Yeah, but I didn't realize that that is a theme. So that's good to know. Well, I don't think it's common. Let's well, be okay. Th 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 yeah. I think this is the second one, so maybe, third. maybe is it the third? Yeah, yeah. Oh wow, yeah. So, so sometimes okay, it three, does three is officially a theme. Joey Day, uh huh. Wow, yeah. 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 So maybe sometimes if it's kind of a more, I mean, it's also was a very timely book, yeah. so the idea was to like get it started and get it out. You know, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. How did Peter's parents deal with the publicity around the article, the book? Were they supportive or? Um, you know, I didn't, they didn't know that, um, he had died from a drug addiction. So his siblings chose not to tell his parents. And I felt like I should defer to them because I, you know, they, they were his, their children. I was the ex-daughter-in-law. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, I had kept in touch with them and I used to send his mom photos of the kids and stuff. Peter wasn't as good about it. So, um, so then a few days before the piece was going to run in the times, I called Peter's mom um, and, and just said, uh, you know, like I have something to tell you. And I told her the truth about how Peter died. And I said, I wrote about it. I'm trying to help people and raise awareness. And she was very supportive and she was actually very grateful that I told her, she said that oh. something didn't fit for her and her husband. They knew there was something yeah. missing, but they couldn't figure it out. I mean, I'm sure no doubt it was devastating to hear, mm -hmm. but at least it made sense. And, right. um, yeah, yeah. And, and they, 
were not in great health since then Peter's dad has passed away and um I didn't um I didn't say anything about the book like I mean I think they knew I was going to write a book but I didn't follow up with that because I didn't want to cause like any more pain and um mm-hmm. and and you know I I just sort of felt like they they she knows it's coming out she knows I'm writing this thing so we've kind of stayed in touch but we just I don't mention it mm-hmm. <laughs> I just don't you know I think she it's I, I'm sure it's not something she would want to read just because it would be really painful so totally. um oh, yeah. yeah right although I think you know I'd like to think that she understands my intentions were good mm-hmm. yeah writing a memoir dredges up so many emotions for everyone and you you mentioned it earlier can can you talk to our listeners about how you worked through the reliving and the memories and just the emotional baggage that comes along with delving into something so deeply and and you went back and reread your journals and really immersed yourself in it can you talk about that yeah i did um it was it was very difficult especially because i had moved back to new york and um i didn't i had a therapist in san diego who was terrific and had done um emdr which is a an eye movement that's eye movement reprocessing and desensitization and reprocessing if I'm saying that right but it is a method of processing trauma for people that have PTSD and and she's a wonderful therapist so when I went back to San Diego or Southern California to visit my friends or my son who's in college there um, I would see her but I didn't have someone in New York that I felt I could get into like a rhythm with that I could I just I wasn't able to find somebody here to work with Mm -hmm. so it was really hard because stuff would would come up often and I sort of had to process it in my own way either writing about it or talking to friends or just feeling really sad you know like I just I would cry a lot and I I sort of you know I'm back in New York and that's where Peter and I met and sort of revisit places that we've been in upstate New York and I went to New England to do some research there for the book and he'd gone to law school there so I think I just kind of processed it in my own way and sporadically through EMDR and therapy when I was in San Diego. And, um, but it was, it was very difficult. I think I felt for the first time really sad. I had been angry for a mm-hmm. long time because that kind of powered me through probate, which is a very tedious and exhausting and frustrating process. Mm-hmm. And I had to clean out Peter's house and sell it and mm-hmm. sell four vehicles, one of which I, I couldn't even drive a motorcycle. Or, so, you know, I had to do all that. And I think I kind of powered through it by being angry at him for doing this, for leaving us this way. And then when I got here to New York and started writing the book, I was much, I was able to feel a lot more sad and hmm. grieve, you, you know, kind of the loss of his friendship and his co-parenting and also sure. just kind of grieving, I think in a lot of ways, the loss of what I thought I was going to have in my life with him and um, didn't have, and I'm not going to have, like, I'm not going to have a a 30 year marriage where I have these two kids with this partner that I can look back on and enjoy, you know, that, that isn't going to be my experience. Um, Mm -hmm. And there is something about not having that. I feel like I'm grieving that. So, um, so all of that stuff was complicated, but I'm, I felt like I was able to kind of dig into it and just kind of not to be cliche, but kind of lean into it and just experience it. Totally. There's this really sweet moment in the beginning of your courtship. Actually, I wouldn't even say the beginning of your courtship. When you first met, you were uh-huh. trying to get a job. And I think he was like the, yeah. the, the work counselor there who's going to help. He was the empo- employment counselor. The employment counselor, yeah. yeah. 
And there's this moment where it ends up like you're just getting to know each other and you're just talking and, and you're thinking yeah. this is really weird. His, this guy's really friendly. And, right. and then you leave and and apparently he stood up and yells to everyone in the room. And it's like this big open room with all these desks. Right. And he yells, that's the woman I'm going to marry. And everyone like yells at him and throws back. <laughs> that's what he said. They all threw stuff at him. <laughs> yeah. They're like, whatever, get back to work. Right. Like as if, you know, right. Yeah. He, but it's like so exemplifies Peter in this book, you know, he was always so confident. He knew what he wanted. And you made him wait two years, too. We got it. I'm mean, going to give away all of the book. You know, this isn't pretty much in the beginning, but like, yeah, this you, is just didn't, you didn't see it. You didn't have this attraction to him. But I know. didn't. I just thought of him as a friend. You know, it was, I just, he just didn't seem my type. He, he, he was confident, but he was also sort of like kind of dorky and funny and just, Right, he was a you scientist. Know, of he was all a scientist. But, yeah, and he <laughs> a was chemist, like, you know, <laughs> right? He really loved philosophy of science back then, and he was very thoughtful. And he was in a band, and he was also a know, rock star. Though broke. we got to point that out, he was also a rock star. He so was he in his right, and he, <laughs> he wasn't. No, he wasn't a total nerd. He was just, um, just different than me, I guess. For some reason, I didn't feel attracted to him. And then in the book, I write about seeing his band perform, and I was like, huh, maybe. Mm, you know, and that was it. Oh, yeah. He's kind of, he's kind of cute, actually. And he <laughs> stuck in there, player, you know, right? he was the bass player and he'd been, what? you know, he yeah. was really nice and he'd stuck, <laughs> we'd become good friends after two years, you know, so mm -hmm. yeah, I guess sometimes that does happen. You know, it wasn't like I was hit in the face, but it was kind mm -hmm. of a slow burn. It was a slow burn. Yeah. <laughs> right. Chad's a bass player. So he's looking at me like, wait a minute. The, the, the bass players are never the center of attention, man. No. That's what he would always say. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's why but it's a slow burn, Chad. <laughs> you know, there's something about bass players, and I, I, I think we can both speak to this island. <laughs> they're quiet. I think they're smarter. I don't know Ooh. what it is about bass players. Like they're holding down the foundation of a song, right? They're they are. Down. They are. So there's something that's such about a good way to players. put it. Hmm. Yes. I'm not buying it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, Chad. Take the compliment. <laughs> right? I, I want to talk about your dad, if that's okay. I know sure. He, he, oh, yeah. He passed away several years ago. And I, I was right. thinking about you and, you know, if, if he was still alive when I was reading, because you share some pretty painful memories of how he made you feel unworthy growing up. Yeah. He used to say, good thing you're smart because you're not pretty. <laughs> Yeah. And yet then he'd call, turn around and, and he had a, he'd call you stoop, which I yeah. guess was short for stupid when you struggled. All, my sisters and I all got that from him. Yeah. We'd so he's seen, he, yeah, like that's just so like hurtful. And oh, I don't yeah. imagine he meant to, but there's also the scene in the book where you and Peter are telling him that, you know, you're engaged yeah. and Peter goes to the bathroom and your father says, don't blow it. Right. He says, don't blow it. Like you're lucky to get him. Mm -hmm. And I, and I say this, I know my dad loved me and I actually love my dad, but he, he, I don't think, you know, I think he really wanted sons and he had three daughters and he just, you know, Peter was like the second coming of you know, Christ to him. I mean, he was like, he's smart. He's a mm -hmm. guy. And then he went to law school. I mean, he just. Was Peter Jewish? Peter was adopted. So his was, birth, it turns out he was, his birth mother was Jewish. Um, really? Oh my gosh. That's so weird. Isn't that funny? So he doesn't yeah. look anything like his, his brother his and parents. sister biological from their parents, but he was adopted. So he looks completely, yet whenever we would go someplace, like we were in Italy and he's like, I'll just tell everybody I'm Italian or Greek, you know, because <laughs> he just kind of looks swarthy. Totally. So he was, yeah, he, he was, you know, sort of, um, 
bloodline wise Jewish, but he was raised by evangelical Christians and he was born again as a kid. And, um, he, he grew up away from that and that, um, that didn't suit him as he became an adult. It wasn't something he embraced or believed in. But, um, my dad just thought he was, you know, fantastic. I mean, he was, he was a great son-in-law. So my, you know, my dad was thrilled to have him in the family. And, but my father didn't value my sisters and I, I mean, I think my, my youngest sister, he had a kind of a special relationship with and did think she was, you know, fantastic, but definitely my older sister and I treated like, what am I going to do with you guys? How am I going to get you married off? (laughs) Like I laugh at it now. I think it was also his generation. Like he just would say whatever came into his mouth, you know, his mind. So without thinking like this might hurt my daughter, like the, you know, you're not very, pretty so it's a good thing you're smart kind of thing so which by the way is so not true i mean you're beautiful oh you're so sweet (laughs) you are you're a beautiful woman absolutely and i've I've seen a couple pictures of you when you were younger and i was like oh my gosh like good god oh no well i I mean everybody goes through that bad period and and i had and i was very very underweight which i you wouldn't think would be an issue but it was yeah your dad oh gosh what did? You, oh my gosh! I just so remembered bad. the scene in the book where they told you they were going to send you to <laughs> skinny, skinny camp. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was I was t- I can't tell you, Jennifer. I was terrified of that, and it wasn't until I was like twenty five. I was saying something to my mom, like, "Well, remember Mr. Brown?" And my mother put her hand over her mouth, and she just said, "Oh, oh I God. mean, we that wasn't real." And I, I just, I thought it was, you know, like. Their Not, whole life, you thought they were going to send you my away. Whole life, like when my parents, skinny. like in the sixties, they would send women that were like overweight to like the fat farm, quote yeah. unquote, this horrible thing. So it was sort of that. It was like, well, we're going to send you to like the skinny farm, you know. Like, so I thought, it, yeah, I was so <laughs> old by the time I realized. Yeah, but it was pretty. It was awful. I mean, my dad would act like he was packing my stuff. He would go get the suitcase out. That's it. You know, if you don't eat the meatloaf, you're going. To, Right, we're gonna send you off. Yeah, oh, we're gonna say which sounds ridiculous. I know, but no, at the time it was terrifying. Just Absolutely. so you know, the tooth fairy is not real either. Mm. <laughs> just, I figured that one out. Thank okay. you. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't as traumatic as yeah. Right or Santa? I Claus. don't imagine. Jeez. There's, I know. I, yeah, you know, those things affect us on such a deep seated level that we're totally unconscious of, and I. I know yes, it yes. a lot to do with like Peter was like this sort of like the savior, like he was ambitious and he was handsome and he was tall and strong and and, and smart and yeah. right, exa- all the things you know. I think you know that we value and and my mm-hmm. dad did not see me as um, as a big prize, so that that's where the don't blow it comes from. I mean. You know, I, I want, I, I think in his mind, he was thinking like, this person will take care of you. So just, you know, don't just stay with him. It'll be, this will be good for you kind of thing, you know, but, and at the time I didn't see it as undermining. It wasn't until I was writing the book where I thought, Hmm. that's kind of crappy. I mean, I remember being in, um, when you do EMDR, one of the things that happens is stuff comes up you watch, I watch this light go back and forth and you're processing something that's traumatic, but other thoughts come up. And at one point I, I remember saying to my therapist, like, oh, that's so weird. I just had an image of my father at Peter's law school graduation. And she said, oh, I wonder, tell me more about that. And I was like, yeah, I don't know why. And I said, you know, it's weird because my dad didn't go to my high school or my college graduation. Like he wouldn't change a business trip to go to my college graduation. And I'm the only one of my sisters that graduated from college. Mm -hmm. But he drove to New Hampshire 
for Peter Peter's Peter. law school. Right. And so at that point I was like, that was really crappy. <laughs> so it's interesting what you learn, you know, later in life about, you know, I started to understand more about my past. I wonder too, if you hadn't had those experiences to made, you know, to make you feel unworthy, if mm-hmm. you had seen Peter and through a different lens, if maybe you oh, yeah. wouldn't have stayed with him as long. You would have seen a lot of what was happening as, you know, not outright abuse, but I would say abuse. I mean, you describe this lonely existence in this 18 year marriage. Yeah. Yeah. 20. <laughs> but, but no, you're, but you know, you're right. And I think if I, if I had been able to advocate for myself, Jennifer, or to say like, no, you know what, you're going to, you're going to spend Saturday with the kids and I'm going to go out and do some stuff I need. Like, I just never, I did not have the confidence to stick up for, stand up for myself. And I think I bought into the, um, to, to Peter's, um, belief system that the person who made the money, you know, kind of wins and Mm -hmm. he was the more Mm -hmm. important one. And we needed to, our lives needed to revolve around his career and his needs. And so I'm, I'm guilty because I, I bought into it. I think if I had had maybe an upbringing where I felt really special and smart and, and valuable and attractive, I, I would have gone into that relationship thinking like, I'm not going to put up with this, you know, but there was no question I was going to put up with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah. And I think, you know, I think Peter was a smart guy who saw that uh, it was going to be pretty easy to be controlling because I was not going to push back. Right. So, Yeah. And, um, I, but I do think you're right. I think, you know, how, how we're raised on our early attachments, the attachments we form to our parents and these significant caregivers in our lives has a huge effect on how we conduct ourselves mm-hmm. throughout our lives. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to say, you know, reading this book, I feel like it's so important as an empowerment book. You know, you're Aww, really trans. You. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for writing it with such an open heart. You're you're vulnerable, and you share. You know the things that you might be embarrassed to share. You know those moments when right, you're feeling right. worthy. But you know, there's so many layers to this book. Not just about you know the story in and of itself, and the tragedy of Peter and his addiction and the whole system and how it needs to be changed. Yeah. But you know, just as you know, women of how we view ourselves. Yeah. And, um, so I thank you for writing it. And I, as I was reading, I thought of so many women I want to send this book to. Oh my gosh. I've gotten a lot of emails. It's funny because everybody reads, I guess, a memoir with their own lens. Like I think I wrote one book, but you read a different one and I've gotten emails and, um, direct messages, both from men and women, but a lot of women who say, you might as well be describing my marriage or, and Mm -hmm. and a lot of the women that wrote were people that were very successful in business. Mm -hmm. And then some men wrote and said, you know, you might as well be describing my marriage too. Like a lot of, I was very surprised that people would pick that out, but you're right. They did. I think there's probably a lot more of that than we think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, I want to talk about the San Diego Writers Festival real quick, because it, it was yeah. supposed to happen this weekend. <laughs> I um, know. So I know, sad. right? So not only, you know, you were scheduled to speak there and right. lots of, lots of wonderful people were. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, this really, um, happened. The coronavirus came along right in the middle of your book tour. So oh, I, I want to like, well, first of all, I'm so sorry. Um, oh, thanks. I mean, I'm luckier than other people who have pub dates now. I feel so, I feel so for all of those writers. 
You did get a month of your book tour. I did get a month and I got very good and I got great press coverage. I did. I'm very grateful for that. But it, it is obviously it's disappointing. You know, all the all the stuff for the spring has been canceled. Are you doing anything online or virtually like book clubs that are, you know, helping to kind of connect with your audience since you're stuck at home? Well, as you noted on my website, I do have a list of questions. I also am registered through Novel Network, which also helps people connect uh, with book clubs, either Skype or Zoom or online. And I have, um, I've offered on social media and I will probably post again that if any group of people are reading it, I'm happy to Zoom in or Skype in or telephone in and discuss with the book club the issues raised, even if it's just an informal, it doesn't have to be a formal book club, even if it's just a group of people that have friends that have read it and want me to Skype in, I'm happy to. uh, And um, and I'll say it again here. And I'm doing um, podcasts like this. I was on Danny Shapiro's Family Secrets podcast. I was on Terry Gross, and some. And I'll be on a couple of others. So I'm trying to. Yeah, I, I'd like to be able to Skype, and I'm doing a couple in um, April. And I'm hoping. I'm hoping there'll be more. I also realize people are just trying to hold their lives together right now. So sure. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to push too much. Yeah. You know what though? I'm. There's been a lot of discussion about that right now because we're all in the same boat. I mean, across yeah. the planet, right? And it right, feels, right. It almost feels icky. Like, well, I don't want to promote myself. I don't. Yeah, it feels so gross to be like, hey, I'll Skype into your book club, buy my book. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like, especially when people are losing their jobs, or you know. But you know what? But I've I've come to learn that it's that's not how it is because ultimately this is a time when we really need each other. And the ability to virtually connect with one another, I think, is what's going to be our saving grace. I, I, t- I tend to agree. I tend to agree. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, I think it's wonderful. Like, I, I encourage you to share that information, where you're going to be, what you're doing, you know, on your website. Oh, well, so. I will then. It's like, yeah. It actually yeah. makes me feel better because I, I want, don't want to walk a line where I'm so self-promoting and not and mm-hmm. being kind of tone deaf about the suffering that's going on. But also, you're right. I mean, I'm reading a lot. You know, mm-hmm. because it's a it's a wonderful escape and a distraction and a good thing you totally. know, to learn. Right. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask nice you, to hear. are you writing? Are you reading? Like, how are you coping with the self-isolation that we're all? Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I'm listening to some podcasts, which I love. I'm, I'm also in grad school, so I'm still doing school and I'll return to field work. I have four more months of that. So I will have that. Um, and I'm also reading. I'm reading The Silence of the Girls now, which is kind of the reimagining of a part of the Greek mythology of um, the Greek myth of um, the Odyssey. Um, I'm, I finished reading the gifted school. I just read, um, God, I've read so many less. Another is a novel. Um, I love to ask again. I yes, to read by less. Keen. How was that? Which book did you say less? Less. Yeah. I was, I, was I, lo- I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was terrific. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's just like a charming, lovely book. And so I've been trying to listen to a lot of books and I'm reading books. I'm reading um, A a Good American by Mm -hmm. Alex George, who has a new book that's just about to come out called The Paris Hours, which was just chosen as a book of the month club. And he's also the owner of an adorable bookshop in Columbia, Missouri, where I, where I did a reading. Um, So he's just a great guy. Yeah. So really cool guy. So yeah, I'm trying to, and I'm trying to support other authors too. Like if I read their books, Mm -hmm. post about that too. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I think a lot of reading and I'm not trying not to binge watch too much um, television. It's hard not to though. 
<laughs> it is hard not to. I know everybody is, but I'm really so trying easy, to like, right? you know, yeah. oh God, it's so easy. Like curb your enthusiasm. I'm like, I'm just going to jump into that and escape. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing to get through it? You are know, you I'm reading doing, too? I'm doing, I am. I'm doing a lot of reading. Well, I read your book and I, so I'm, I have a, a big reading list. I bet you do. Yeah. I'm also reading Where the Crawdads Sing. Oh, I loved that. Oh what do gosh, you think? Yeah. yeah, I abs- absolutely love it. It's so good. Yes. I'm only halfway through, so no spoilers. No, but, she's a beautiful writer, you know, and another great memoir is Educated, which you may have already read, but that's- I a, have read it, yes. Oh, mm-hmm. incredibly powerful. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. and my my very good friend, Adrian Brodeur, who used to be a San Diegan, wrote Wild Game, which is a terrific, beautiful memoir, if anybody's looking for another good read. That's on my book list, Yeah. Yeah, I, just, oh, it's I, I bought it a couple, couple months ago. So it's it, it's probably next on my list. So thank you for reminding me. <laughs> tell, tell us her name again. It's Adrian Brodeur, and the mm-hmm. memoir is Wild Game. It's awesome. terrific. So speaking of field work, it's, so you decided to go back to school, get your master's, and become a licensed social worker. So right, right. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> yes, another incredibly high-paying profession, as you can imagine, just <laughs> like journalists. Yeah, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, right. um, I think it's awesome. You you pursue things Thank that you're passionate you. about, as opposed to the things that give you that mansion on the hill, which, you know, right. You know. No, I did. And especially after I think after uh, coming face to face with this death in my life of someone I knew so well, it made me really kind of rethink things. And I thought, like, what do I want the rest of my life to look like? And mm-hmm. I was very interested in service and writing about social and political issues. And so I feel like this is a way to maybe do both. Yeah, you know, do some good in the world and also find new things to write about. Well, I know you're going to be really good at it. Oh, thank you, Jennifer. I hope so. Yeah. Normally, Chad would ask you now what your oh, what the uh, what the Desert Island book yeah is yeah your Desert Island so book list. What's the Desert Island book list? Um, gosh, there's so many. Well, I'll tell you what's on my what's on my table to read. I have. Um, Oh, not Brave New World. Um, I have The Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. I have, believe it or not, I have War and Peace on Audible that, I, really? <laughs> that I'm going to... I know. Well, I got just the figured, time for it. <laughs> I got time, right? Why not? Right. Um, and there there are a couple of new books that I wanted, that I wanted to read too. And I'm thinking about... Um, I'm going to look up my... If you just give me a sec, I'm going to look up and see what was on my... Um, well, I've, I had a list of books I've also wanted to read. And my son gave me, uh, I can't remember what it is. I'm sorry. Ter- see, I'm terrible. So my desert, I guess my desert Island book's going to have to be war and peace. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, that's practically like a whole list. Cause it's so long. It totally is. Yeah. That might get you through <laughs> that entire stay on the desert Island. Yeah, it might. <laughs> right. There's some Anita Shreve books that I, I have on my bookshelf to read that I haven't gotten to that I want to. Um, so um, I'll, I'll probably try to catch up on all that stuff. That's just been sitting there waiting for me to read. And now I can. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Eileen Zimmerman, thank you so much for joining us here today, for spending some time Aww. with us and talking about this. And thank you for writing this really important book. Well, thank you so much for having me and for letting me talk about it. It's been wonderful. Absolutely. You can learn more about Eileen Zimmerman and her memoir, Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy, on her website at EileenZimmerman.com. You can follow her on Twitter at Eileen Z and on Instagram, Eileen Z Writer. This has been another episode of The Premise. 
visit us online at thepremisepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at podpremise and subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, thanks for listening. Are you an author with a story to tell, but you're just not sure how to get that story out? Guess what? You don't have to do it alone. Marnie Friedman is an incredible writing coach. She offers personalized support and expertise to guide you from a kernel of an idea to completion. Visit MarniFriedman.com to learn more. That's M-A-R-N-I-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N.com. This episode is brought to you by Monkey See Media, a small boutique design firm offering award-winning websites, book cover designs, book trailers, and photography services. And full disclosure, we love what we do. Chad and I founded Monkey See Media in 2004, and we're still going strong. Visit monkeyseemedia.com. That's M-O-N-K-E-Y, the letter C, media.com to see how we can help you promote your book, build a powerful online presence. Mm-hmm. What else you got, Chad? Uh, let's see. We've got the San Diego Writer Festival. San Diego Writers Festival. There That's are many writers. <laughs> and they're a proud sponsor of our Premise Podcast as well. <laughs>